0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest, who joined me via Skype, is Joshua Moore. He is the author of five novels, including Damascus, Some Things That Meant the World to Me, and All This Life. His newest work is a memoir called Sirens, which is an account of his years of substance abuse in San Francisco. It is reflective and funny, as Moore reveals, with great vulnerability, what it is like to hit rock bottom, hover at the brink of death, and crawl back out. In the memoir, he writes about getting a lot of rejection letters from editors when he sent them stories about addiction— So we began by discussing if these rejections were on his mind when he began Sirens.
1: I remember that very clearly, like, getting those email rejections. And, you know, I was in some sort of despair, um, as I pretty much was on a daily basis back then. And, you know, they would say, like, these people are too unlikable. Nobody wants to think about this. Nobody wants to be in this world. And what's interesting about the memoir is, Well, obviously, I didn't want to be in that world anymore either. You know, I've got seven years clean at this point. But the book is really about second chances. The book's about, you know, what do we do with opportunities to correct some things that we might not have been doing a good job at? I mean, that transcends drugs, that transcends booze. I mean, that's something that I would imagine that every confused human is thinking about on a daily basis. Um, two years ago, I had a pretty serious stroke and they found a eight millimeter hole in the middle of my heart. Um, and it was determined that I needed to have heart surgery so they could build a wall in the middle of my, of my heart. And, you know, I had an 18 month old daughter at the time and the, when they made this discovery, I had two months to kill until the surgery was going to happen. And it dawned on me that if I died during the operation, my daughter would have had no conscious recollection of me. Uh, I don't have any memories of being 18 months old. I feel as though she and I have shared all these wonderful milestones. And the first time I played her the Rolling Stones or gave her a bite of pizza, or first time her feet felt the ocean, um, but she would never have any conscious recollection of that. So I started to write this out of a fear of her never knowing who I was. I wrote this as a way to document warts and all exactly who her father had been. And, you know, due to the content of the memoir, there are some really dubious confessions here. (laughs) So it's sort of like, well, why would I want her to know these things? Um, But at the time it felt very important to me that she had kind of unfettered access into exactly, what made her pops tick?
0: So for those who haven't read your book, will you just tell us a little bit about what your life was like when you were kind of out of control about what age did you start using and, and about the time you're writing about, especially?
1: Yeah, I was, you know, I was, a an acid guy, uh, MDMA guy, a pill guy, um, and then I you know, when I got into my early twenties and I was living in San Francisco, I when I shot Special K for the first time, um, I really I'm the sort of person who really likes oblivion. Um, there are certain people that that lack of clarity really appeals to us and I was one of those people. Um, and so I found myself trying to get behind a bar because bartending seemed like the best job in the world. So all throughout my 20s, that's what I did. I bartended. I ran a bar in the Mission District of San Francisco. Um, and, you know, for a long time, partying is really fun. I would say that during my teenage years and my early 20s, I was having a really, really good time. I look back on those, that era with a lot of fondness. And then all of a sudden it stops being fun. Uh, all of a sudden, you're not driving anymore um, and you're, you know, doing cocaine when you first wake up in the morning or whatever your drug of choice happens to be. Um, and, and that happened to me around around 24, 25 um, is when things started to get hairy, where I wasn't coming home. Um, I was getting in a lot of fist fights. I was I was married for three years in my 20s. And unfortunately, she had to endure that that epic. So I think there was—I can't say for certain that it was like it was one unified experience. You know, I think these things start off shiny and fun. It's—it's um, it's fun to be reckless. It's fun to be wanton, and then all of a sudden, it's—it's it's got you, and and you don't know how to make good decisions anymore.
0: You're listening to First Draft: A Dialogue on Writing, produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest, who joined me via Skype, is Joshua Moore author of the memoir, Sirens. One of the things that you wrote about was, it was a sentence you wrote, and it said, it was the punishment that got me high. And I noticed throughout, I don't know if you ever did a word count, but this idea of punishment and the word of punishment comes up so much. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a certain, you know, literal and, and emotional sadism in that lifestyle, Um, seeing not only kind of what you can get away with, but what you can't get away with. I mean, I would have a fist fight and I almost enjoyed the ones I didn't win more than the ones I did Um, because I, I just, I loved chaos. That was something that uh, was, was my trusty co-pilot for, for years and years. I remember somebody asking me one time, um, where I hadn't gone home in three or four days and, and, and my friend said, um, you know, what do you get out of this? Cause you know, I had been on the, on the road for three or four days and this person was just kind of coming into it, you know, with a relatively clear head. Um, and I, I remember looking and being like, what am I getting out of this? And nothing. And, and I was totally okay with that for a really long time. Um, you know, there I think the, the thing that we don't often talk about with with alcoholism or, or, or drug addiction is that it takes a long time to be a really good alcoholic or a really good drug addict, meaning that like it would probably take 18 hours of the day to do that job well. You know, whether you're copping, you know, being high, recovering, dealing with hangovers and whatnot. So that was sort of my In a sense, that's a lot of where my artistic and creative disposition has come from, is that if you're able to get on the other side of your addiction, um, you can sort of use that addict's tunnel vision as an asset. So, I mean, I've published six books since 2009, and I'm certainly not doing that because I'm smarter than anybody. I'm just doing that because my work day is longer and I was able to kind of superimpose that tunnel vision that I had as an addict and now I use it as an artist. So when other people are going to sleep, you know, I'm brewing another cup of coffee and writing for four or five more hours. So it's, it's, it's interesting to see what lessons from that world you can actually bring into your sober life. Nobody really ever talks about like, what are the advantages of being an alcoholic? Um, but I would say that's one thing that I, I was able to kind of tune it in a way that it can be um, a positive influence in my life rather than a detriment.
0: One of the things that struck me when I read this was actually how vulnerable you made yourself be. You had moments that I would think would be shameful and humiliating. Um, <laughs> you, you, you wrote about, you know, stealing from someone and punching him. You wrote about being a bedwetter when you were drunk and, and times when you would wet the bed, you ruined marriage. Um, how did you go to those places? I mean, first of all, you didn't have to write this, although you said you wanted to be completely honest for your daughter. But how did you go there? And what was it like to relive it as you wrote it?
1: Yeah, I'm glad you brought my daughter, um, Eva, up right then. Because it's funny, because when you hear when I hear it in that frame that way, like, Oh, you know, you've robbed people, or you've beaten people up, or you've, you know, wet the bed in your twenties, 397 million times, and then it brings me back down to that that one question, like, well, why am I putting this together for my daughter? Um, you know, why do I want her to know these things? And more more often than not, the decisions that we're making in real time in our status quo's uh, are are often being informed by the legacies of our own family of origin. And I never really knew my father. Um, Not like I didn't know who he was. I mean, I I did. I lived with him for a while. I lived with him from when I was zero until I was five. And then I lived with him from when I was 12 to 18. Um, But he was a a person who was very comfortable, cloaked in facades. Um, And one of the biggest regrets in my whole life is that he he died without me ever really knowing who he was. And I would have loved to know more about his mistakes and his blunders and his idiosyncrasies or the things that he's ashamed of. Um, so maybe I overcorrected a little bit. <laughs> maybe Sirens is an overcorrection because I was so petrified of Ava not knowing um, that I was willing in this novel to, you know, carve my congenitally defective heart out, um, and put it right there on the table for my daughter to examine and, you know, and readers too. I mean, I can't pretend that it's only in a vacuum. I decided to publish this. I decided to, to share this work with readers. And I would be lying to you if I didn't say that I'm, I'm really, I'm really scared about that. You know, I've, I've had five novels come out and and normally like, before a novel comes out, all you want is more readers, you know, more readers, more readers, more reviews, more whatever, just so people are ingesting the work. But there are certain days when I say to myself, gosh, I I wouldn't be that broken up if this novel, if this memoir disappeared without a trace, Uh, which is a really weird way to feel like right as a new book is coming out, because I am so excited about it. and I'm so proud of the work. But then there's this other part of me that's like, don't look over here, you know, <laughs> leave this alone. This is just this is just for me.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Joshua Moore, author of the memoir Sirens. Tell me a little bit about the title.
1: Yeah, well, I'm, I'm really terrible at naming books. Uh, I've, I, I always turn books in with these really long, elaborate titles, and neither my agent or, or an editor is like, we're absolutely not going to call it that. Um, I wanted to call this book, Do Addicts Dream of Electric Shame? Um, and they were like, I think you should have a good night's sleep. Um, maybe eat a big breakfast and we'll talk about this tomorrow. Because um, that doesn't work, um, and I sort of knew that that was probably going to come. Um, titles to me are you want to you want to tip the hand just a little bit about what the the story might be about, um, literally, and then from a subtextual standpoint too. Um, certainly, the, the siren works on the literal level uh, because of the emergency uh, about the impending heart surgery. You see me riding in an ambulance with sirens and whatnot. Um, But from a more metaphorical level, uh, early in the book, I share kind of the Odysseus myth with the reader, Um, you know, in which Odysseus was the one who wanted to hear the sirens sing. Um, But back then it was a death sentence. Um, You know, men, sailors would hear these melodies being sung by the sirens and they would lose the ability to do their jobs and all the ships would wreck on the rocks and everybody would die and the ships would go down to the bottom. And that seemed like a really apt moment to to zero in on because the way Odysseus solved the problem is he fastened himself to the mast of his ship, uh, had them tie him up with rope, and then he had all his sailors put beeswa- beeswax in their ears um, so they could perform their duties without hearing the sirens singing Whereas Odysseus could hear them, um, but self-destruction or some sort of annihilation was impossible because he couldn't move. Um, and that seemed like a really cogent analogy for, for, for narcotics, you know, or for alcohol. This, this idea that there are these voices that are just calling us to calamity or calling us to ruin. Um, and even if we know, on one kind of fundamental level, that we shouldn't listen, we don't know how to not. There's this, there's this tug, there's this um, seduction that that leads us to make decisions that are are going to be really self-destructive.
0: During that time, you you had a stroke that led to your heart surgery, but it turns out that over time you had actually had three strokes.
1: Yeah. The first stroke I had, I was, I was using, um, I think I know the night it happened. I I don't totally know this to be factual. Um, but there was a night of, of pretty severe partying and I lost some feeling in my, in an arm and ended up at an emergency room in San Francisco. Um, And the doctor was like, the doctor came in and was like, hey, what's going on? I go, well, I'm having a little bit of numbness, but I'm on about two grams of cocaine. Um, And she goes, well, stop doing cocaine, and then just walked out of the room. Um, She had either been on her shift for too long, or she had just seen so many junkies that she didn't actually want to do her due diligence. Um, Or that wasn't the stroke, or the stroke happened, you know, some other night where I was doing other, you know, asinine things. Um, the second stroke, I do remember I was down South. Um, this is, I think in 2012 for the LA times festival of books. Um, when I was staying at a little bungalow in Los feelers and was checking my email in the morning before I had to go to USC where the festival of books was. Um, and I heard this popping sound in my right temple. It sounded like a match being extinguished in water. Um, and some animal part of me knew that I was that I was dying. Um, I, I remember thinking to myself, I have 10 seconds left. Um, what are you going to do with them? And I decided I was going to spend those last 10 seconds telling Leota that I loved her one last time. And I walked into the to the room and tried to talk, and and my mouth didn't work. I had total aphasia, in which you know. In your brain, you're forming coherent sentences, but what's coming out of your mouth just sounds like mashed potatoes, um, you know, ended up in the emergency room. Then when they found out that that was actually my second stroke, because they did a CAT scan um, and an MRI and then those sorts of things. And they just told me to take a baby aspirin and hope that this was an anomaly. Um, sort of sent me on my way um, and then three years later um, was when I had that third stroke and that's when they actually dug in um, and figured out about this congenital heart defect. It's funny though when I was trying to tell people afterward I'd be like oh yeah you know I have a hole in my heart everybody was like yeah uh, we, we've known we've that for years Josh. It's like ha, 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 you know, the gallows humor is alive and well.
0: Um, The end of part one, it's chapter six, it's the very end, what seems to me to be what it's like to hit rock bottom. Can you talk about, sort of summarize that weekend and what you were writing about?
1: That was the moment where I said to myself, I'm gonna die, Um, I'm either gonna die by my own hand um, or I'm just going to put myself in some sort of idiotic circumstance, a drunk driving accident, whatever, and that's going to be the end of it. So the, the the way part one ends in the book um, is that I found myself in a, in a dive bar on a Friday morning, um, chatting with some guy at the bar who had a bottle of pills. Um, and, you know, he gave me some, or I bought some, I don't totally remember how that Part of it shook down, um, and I lost contact with the world for, I don't know, 30 hours, 35 hours. I have no recollection of what happened between that Friday morning and that next Sunday morning. Sunday morning where I came to, I was in a motel room by myself. Um, this place was in a certainly a state of disrepair. Um, and, and I, and I felt like it wasn't really, there wasn't really much left for me to live for at that point. Um, I just, I knew that I would never get my problems under control. And I think maybe that's what despair actually means, you know, because normally we start to contextualize, we try to rationalize through things by saying things are going to get better. You know, if I just get this promotion at work, I just get this, I just get that, so on and so forth. I know that my life is going to get better. Um, And I lost that. I didn't see that anymore. I just saw that I was super low um, and there was no coming back. So I had, you know, 20 or so of this guy's pills left. I don't know how I got the pills. I must have stolen them from him. I certainly couldn't afford to buy them all. Um, and so I would take a handful and say, cool, this is it. You know, I'm just gonna get super sleepy and float off and that's that. So I would take a handful of pills and wash it down with the beer and I would chicken out. I mean, I guess that's the only way to say it, you know, that there was some sort of primitive or primal tug to survive. Um, so I would eat the pills Wait a couple minutes and then I would make myself throw up. Um, And then I would take some more pills. Hopefully, I wouldn't chicken out this time. Oh my gosh, what am I doing? Um, And I would make myself throw up again. So that was sort of the dance ingest the pills, puke them up, ingest the pills, puke them up Um, until I ran out. Um, And at that point, you know, that was the moment where you say to yourself, Well, I obviously don't want to die or I would have let myself float away here. Um, And if I'm going to stay, if I'm actually going to be in this existence, let's make it better and let's start making some improvements. Um, So that happened on a Sunday morning and I started rehab the next day.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest, who joined me via Skype, is Joshua Moore, author of the memoir, Sirens. I think one of the things that a memoir like this, or at least your memoir, brings up, and I think it moves towards this, towards the end, from closer to the beginning when you're talking with your wife and she says, don't make yourself out to be the bad guy, and you're talking about all this blame, to the point where you started to learn about this Dr. Frostman who did this heart surgery on himself and then turned out to be a Nazi. And then looking at your own parents, your mom drank, your father left at an early age. And you said basically that you used to see things as good and bad and binaries, and that has changed for you. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that, but also if that realization has changed your writing at all. I hope
1: it has. I mean, I feel like the best literature never runs away from complications or complexities. I think that we want to kind of give all of our characters the dignity of complexity. Uh, if you're ever in a writing workshop, you'll hear people say like, oh, this is like this isn't a 3D character. This isn't a 3D character. And and typically what that means is you haven't you haven't rendered them from a variety of vantage points. So the readers have the opportunity just to to observe that character be who he is or who she is in various environments. You know, who we are at work isn't necessarily who we are um, at home. Or somebody that we've just met five minutes ago, we're going to interact with them differently than somebody we've known for five years. And I like books that show me somebody is Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader at the same time. Like, I don't want my Darth Vader over here hanging out, being a bad person. And I don't want my Luke Skywalker, you know, sitting over there helping old ladies cross the street. Uh, I like characters that are Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker conflated. And we're willing to risk likability. We're willing to say to our reader, like, you know, you might not like what I'm just about to tell you. But if you're patient, and allow me to to kind of elucidate the entirety of what makes this person up, you know, that's reality, um, and that's complicated. And I, and I and I like books that are willing to to risk those things. So certainly, I think I did that with myself in this book. I'm um, I mean, I've told you some things that I'm proud of. I told you some things that I'm ashamed of. But hopefully, by the end of the book, you kind of come through this whole journey with me. There's levity joy. I tried to show a lot of a lot of tenderness at times. I wanted this to be a a book that that kind of represents the the entire palette of of human emotion. So you know yes there's fist fights and you know probably too many drugs. um, But there's also a lot of humor. Um, I think that's complexity. When I was in graduate school I had a, a teacher who used to talk about core instabilities are two things that live inside a person that are kind of diametrically opposed desires. So in in, in a junkie or in an alcoholic, it's this, there's part of us that really, really, really wants to be sober. And there's a part of us that really, really, really doesn't want to be sober. And those two things are in constant, constant combat. Um, And hopefully, you know, we live long enough Um, that that the sober side wins.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest, who joined me via Skype, is Joshua Moore, author of the memoir, Sirens. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer?
1: This is from To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. The nights now are full of wind and destruction, The trees plunge and bend, and their leaves fly helter-skelter until the lawn is plastered with them, and they lie packed in gutters and choke rain pipes and scatter damp paths. Also, the sea tosses itself and breaks itself, and should any sleeper fancying that he might find on the beach an answer to his doubts, a sharer of solitude, throw off his bedclothes, and go down by himself to walk on the sand. No image with semblance of serving and divine promptitude comes readily to hand, bringing the night to order and making the world reflect the compass of the soul. The hand dwindles in his hand. The voice bellows in his ear. Almost, it would appear that it is useless Such confusion to ask the night those questions as to what, and why, and wherefore, which tempt the sleeper from his bed to seek an answer. So like I said, that's from Virginia Woolf's masterpiece to The Lighthouse. Um, That would be one of my Desert Island books. I just think this novel is absolutely perfect. And one of the things I really admire about... I'm just going to call her Virginia because we're old friends. Um, one of the things I really admire about Virginia's prose is how oral it is. Um, that's that's a book that just screams to be read aloud. And I think about sonic constructions a lot in in my work, certainly in Sirens. I mean, no doubt I read this memoir allowed to myself at least a hundred times from beginning to end um, I think a lot about my prose is kind of time signature and the only way I can really catch those things is to actually experiencing it from an RL perspective and I learned that from Virginia Woolf. and any you know aspiring writer who's who's listening to this make sure you, you read your, your revisions aloud so you can really hear how it sounds because things can escape our, our eye when we're just reading this. But when we have a chance to interact with it from a sonic perspective, um, that's, that's where the magic happens.
0: Can you read something that you wrote? Maybe it was difficult to write or changed a lot from the first draft.
1: It's six in the morning on new year's day and Ava cries from the crib. Which means my wife says something to me like your turn and I say something whiny like bottle fine and stumble into the kitchen and spill milk on the counter and don't wipe it up. Leave it for later after coffee after caffeine makes my mind fire right. I tuck the bottle in the waistband of my drawers so I can hoist Ava up with both arms and she says let's play a new phrase for her. And I carry her back into our bed and lay her in the middle and get back in myself, Lila and I flanking her, the three of us lying like a happy family. And for 20 seconds, that's what we are. Then the numbness starts. I notice it first in my right arm, then realizes it's creeping into my leg, too. That's weird, I think, two limbs falling asleep at the same time. Soon, there's no feeling on the entire side of my body, from shoulder to toes. I shift positions, rolling onto my back so blood can flow freely. Five seconds, 10, 20, still numb. Fear spills out of me like the milk rolling down my daughter's chin. I shake my dead hand back and forth, back and forth, and say to Lila, something's wrong. And she says, what? And I say, 911. And she's to the phone fast, and I roll over onto my stomach, a gesture that Ava interprets as an invitation to play, and she's straddling my back and yelling, hop on pop, hop on pop. My frantic wife doing her best to conjure the paramedics and me knowing beyond any doubt that the numbness will zip over me like a body bag, and Ava keeps chanting, hop on pop, hop on pop. And I am crying uncontrollably, grieving a girl I'll never get to see turn into a woman. And if this is the end of my life, I wish it had ended sooner. I wish I had died before meeting Lilo, before ever seeing Ava on the ultrasound, the size of an orange seed, our nickname for her until she was born. I wish I'd never gotten sober, never tried to be a better person. Why endure so much harrowing improvement to die like this at 38 years old.
0: Tell us why you chose that.
1: I worked on that for like six months. I couldn't, I couldn't get that, that voice right. One, one time it would feel too rushed. The next time it would feel too maudlin, um, for the life of me, I couldn't figure out how I could run the same choreography. Like the scene wasn't changing. I got up, I got Ava, I got back into bed, and then I had a stroke. Um, but I couldn't find the right words. I couldn't figure out how to put that that moment together. So I did this interesting exercise that I've now now is a part of my um, revision process. In which I started, I stripped everything out except the dialogue. So, and there's what, like three or four lines of dialogue there. Um, And I worked on those those precise lines of dialogue until I got those right. And then I started to fold in other elements of narrative construction, like building it one craft element at a time, until I brought in every other aspect of. Storytelling, so that way nothing got grandfathered in. Everything had to earn its way um, back into the act of draft. So I think the, the the draft that I had started with was probably five pages, and what I read to you was basically one page. And it was a matter of kind of separating the the meat of the scene from the fat and the connective tissue of the scene, and letting the meat have the opportunity to shine and render that moment of emergency with enough anxiety that it would draw the reader into the narrative. Where do you write? My process has changed quite a bit over the years. I used to be a strictly nocturnal writer. I would write from about midnight until about five in the morning um, at an artist collective in downtown San Francisco called the San Francisco Writers' Grotto. Right now, my family's spending a year up in Seattle, Um, so I'm writing in a very cold basement um, or various cafes uh, around the greater Seattle area. So I'm the sort of person who can pretty much write anywhere. I know that there are authors who need rituals, but all I really need is 20 minutes of free time and three shots of espresso, and I'm good to go.
0: And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: The zoo. We have a season's pass at the Seattle Zoo. Uh, We live like three blocks away from it. And Ava and I are at the zoo at least two or three times a week. In fact, I've got tokens from their carousel jangling in my pocket as we speak.
0: And who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: I have four or five really amazing readers from, from graduate school that I, that I'll, I'll, bug. Um, that was more for the novels, um, for the memoir. I didn't really share it with anybody. Um, I, I, got this pretty far on my own, um, and then kind of poked my head up and sent it to my agent as I got deeper into the, into the process. So sometimes I feel like we need that, Cooks, cooks in the kitchen paradigm, it's, it's helpful to have feedback. And then sometimes I feel like we need that vacuum. Uh, we need to be, to be left alone to do the work that we needed to do. And the memoir required a little bit more um, sequestering than, than other books have.
0: And how have you dealt with rejection?
1: I think about rejection as a boxer primarily uh, this idea being that, you know, if somebody punches you in the face, um, kind of your instinct is to to sort of cover up and protect yourself. Um, more often than not, that's that's probably the wrong thing to do. Um, and that the way that you're gonna you're gonna finally succeed is to is to punch your way out, um, is to move and be strategic. Um, and not allow, you know, that predator um, to take advantage of you. So, for example, if I get a rejection, if something happens that hurts my feelings from a literary perspective, I make sure that that day I find a way to honor my art. Um, So if my agent sends a manuscript out to an editor and an editor says that they don't want to buy it, um, I have that same instinct that everybody else has that I want to pull the duvet over my head and order Thai food and watch Netflix. Um, but instead, that's when I'm going to write for five or six hours. I'm going to punch my way out of it. I'm not going to give those people that much authority in my world. Um, I make art for art's
0: sake. And what is your favorite word? Insomnia. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Joshua Moore, author of the memoir, Sirens. He joined me via Skype. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.